Hey, I'm Craig Finn, and this is my podcast, That's How I Remember It, which examines the connection between memory and creativity. Each episode features a discussion between myself and one creator about the role that memory plays in their art. These conversations reveal the different ways each creator synthesizes their remembered life experience to tell stories about themselves and the world we live in. In the spring of 1993, I was living in Boston, driving to Logan Airport to pick up a friend. I was listening to WZBC Radio, and a song came on called Web in Front. It was by a North Carolina band called Archers of Loaf. I got obsessed with the song, and then somehow got an advance of their debut record, Icky Metal, which also thrilled me. I became a huge fan of the band, saw them a ton of times. My band Lifter Puller even opened for them in Rochester, New York at some point. Archers of Loaf mostly stopped touring and playing in 1998. Lead singer Eric Bachman continued making beautiful and rich music as Crooked Fingers, and also under his own name, and he continues to do so today. Archers came back to touring in 2011 and 12, but now the band has come back and come back strong with a great new album, Reason in Decline, which comes 24 years after their last studio record, which I think is an anomaly in rock and roll history. I was honored to speak with Eric, and he was thoughtful, funny, and honest about all of it. Here's Eric Bachman, and that's how I remember it. History's rewritten when the memories get meddled with the way that I remember it. I want to start where I start all these, which is do you think you have a good memory? I I think my memory gets worse as I get older. There was a time when I, I would have answered yes, and that time ended about five months ago. You know, about <laughs> five, five years ago, I have a five year old kid, and that's when. I started losing my mind. Do you think that's connected? I mean, in, in some real way, do you think you let go of memory when you have a kid? I think, I think it's age. I think it's uh, bandwidth. And I think it's having a child. In my, I can't speak for everybody, but for me, it most certainly was. Because it, it, it induced anxiety. I started this podcast with the idea that everyone would say, all the writers would say, I have a great memory and I'm telling the real story, you know? Yeah. And, um, and, and that's not how it has gone. People haven't haven't said that. A lot of people have had a lot of qualified things. One thing I found is that when I, I used to be really good at remembering people. And when I started touring a lot, I got this thing where I'm never going to see that guy again. And then I just let go of him really quick because I, it was so, trans, it's not transactional, but you know, you're like, oh, I'm going to be in Denver tomorrow. So I won't see this guy. And then it, carried over into my real life. And then you meet your like partner's coworker and you're like, oh, <laughs> I can't I remember, remember her name. <laughs> yeah, I can't remember her name and I met her 30 seconds ago. But how do you think like your memory affects your writing, songwriting, storytelling? Well, I don't know if it does consciously. Now that doesn't matter. Uh, the best writing often comes from a subconscious place, but I feel whenever I proactively try to remember things and work them into something, it doesn't work as well. Mm-hmm. So I would almost say that when I try to use memory, you know, proactively, you know, I'm consciously trying to do it. I, I, I always have lackluster results. It's weird that you're talking about this because this is something I think about not a lot, but enough so that I can remember having these thoughts. I I just try to not delve back into a painful memory or a positive memory or anything to create a, a song or a lyric. I'm always trying to uh, almost proactively avoid that. If that sounds strange, it might, because it comes out anyway. Do you go to try to go to like an autopilot kind of place or an automatic no, thing? No, not, auto, not autopilot. 
I just try to be in the moment. And if I come on a lyric and it comes out, it's very sonic. It's very phonetic for me. And I th I'm sure for you it is too. I, in fact, I, I sense that it is from hearing hearing your music, uh, where you're also, you got to fill this these syllables that you like with some kind of word, <laughs> you know. That's what I, one thing I loved about the the Archer stuff, and why I, pro, I don't I don't like to print lyrics with Archer stuff is a lot of that stuff. I'm not, I wasn't saying anything. I just wanted to, it to be a puh and a cuh and a there, and then words would just mess it up, you know. There's a percussive nature of this stuff, right? Yeah, especially with a rock band, with a with a with a faster rock band, you know. So in my in my mind, so um, but you know, it's it would be it would be dishonest to say that I don't consider memory at all, or that I don't have a good memory, because there are times when it just has to be. I had a conversation. I remember it. I'm going to write about it, and you know, you're just doing it because um, that happens. But I know that I I actually try to not uh, do that. Do you think the like one thing I think of, and again, uh, sort of strengthened by these conversations I've been having is that sometimes the details is where these things show up in meaning. Like, you know, we, we build these worlds, but the pictures we hang on the back in the wall in the back are, are actually our real, right. our real lives, you know? And I, I, I keep using the example of like, you know, I put an Altima, a uh, Nissan Altima in a car in, in a song. I don't know much about songs about cars. I mean, <laughs> and I, an Uber picked me up and it was an Altima and it showed up in the song when I was writing next day because I needed a name of a car. Sure. And that was like a thing from my life, but it was, it just kind of made. Yeah. It's not an ugly word. Yeah. It's fine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's, but it's, but it's sort of the, the, the details sometimes is where these things show up. I've found. Are there senses that, that are likely to trigger your memories or, or part of, you know, part of your memories, taste, touch, light, whatever? I, I haven't thought about that at all. It's a, it's a, Hard question to to, uh, I guess visually, it'd be it'd be things I see, and of course things you hear would be the two two strongest. I don't I have a touch too. I don't know. I don't. Writing is such a difficult thing, and and over a lifetime of doing it, the biggest thing for me is to try to not find a formula. Try to not find things that you're referring to to fall in because you will we all that's what we do as a species we, we find things oh that works let's do that let's, let's do yeah. that you know but that's when it starts to get uh samey and just not not the original reason why you got into the to writing songs to begin with so i feel that that's uh hearing and seeing would be the two top ones because a lot of it for me is conversations i hear and then i'll be responding to it because it won't be somebody i oh, somebody i don't know or somebody that I don't like per se, or somebody that I thought I liked and I don't now, or somebody that I didn't like and now I do. And I'll hear a conversation and that sparks an idea for a song. Are you an eavesdropper? Oh, of course. Yes. Oh gosh. Oh, to a fault. Absolutely. I'm, I'm really big into putting the headphones on in the subway, but not putting any music on. <laughs> and I get so much that way. Uh, yeah. I've never done that. Um, That's good. Yeah. Yeah. You get in a crowded space with headphones on and people say anything near you. Yeah. It's it's amazing. Um, I mean, of course, Subway is also a lot of strangers together, but you have to find the people that are that are together talking. Talking about the beginning, do you have like early early you know musical memories? Like, is, is early music that you reacted to? Or I do. I have many of those. Uh, uh, my first uh, when I was a kid, and music started being something that I was engaging with. I was probably four years old, and we lived in Franklin, Tennessee. And uh, my mother was a very big uh, country music fan. And so uh, we would have access to a lot of, uh, there was a lot of live things. I remember going to see, I think Johnny Cash. My dad worked for Metropolitan Life Insurance. 
there was a convention. I remember, it may have been Jefferson Pilot. I don't remember. Anyway, there's one of these things where we went and Johnny Cash was one of the judges for this like talent show. He might have played a song or two and there were some other singers there that were famous. I, I'm four, so I'm not enamored with them. Now I'm like, holy, that's amazing. Yeah, but now, back then I was a kid. We would go see, so, so the first record my parents ever got me was a Phyllis Diller record. Rainbow was the song, and uh, then I had Glenn Campbell, Rhinestone Cowboy. I think that came out in 1974. That was one of the first records my parents got me. I had a little Fisher-Price turntable, and uh, Folsom Prison Blues was one of them. I remember having those three records. These are, these are all story songs, kind of. Right? I mean, a little bit. Absolutely. I mean, I loved uh, those records. And I uh, and I remember my dad being more into things like uh, The Fifth Dimension. And uh, he, he, had, he had a Dylan record and he had a Beach Boys record. But he had some bad stuff. He liked Barry Manilow and stuff, too, that I, I liked at the time. But grew up, thought it wasn't necessarily something I would ever be into later. But, uh, but there was a lot of country music and a lot of... Uh, it was a lot of good music in my house as a kid. Um, my parents divorced when I was seven or eight. And so a lot of that music, and this is, uh, I think, the crux of what you're getting at. There's a lot of, I get a lot of laughs if I ever say, uh, oh, yeah, that music sounds like my, my parents' divorce. <laughs> because the Carpenters or ABBA or Ambrosia, these really deep, you know, 70s yacht rock bands, you know, they sound like my parents' divorce, you know. And that has a, strangely enough, has a positive at this point. I think of that music as a, as a good as a good memory as versus as versus something that and certainly wasn't a good a good time. Uh, it was a bad time, but uh, and it was bad because I lived with my mom for a while, with my dad for a while. It was, we were moving all over the place. It was not. It was unsettled, you know. Mm -hmm. But for some reason, maybe the music from that time was a calming thing or something. And at that time, I was really starting to respond to music and really beginning to uh, because you needed it. You know, I needed it. Yeah, a good friend of mine and I, we, we, we mentioned uh, station wagon music, which is, uh, you know, when you were a kid, they put you in the back of the station wagon and that was AM radio. And Absolutely. that is, and that is uh, what I always, I always kind of think of a station wagon, um, which you don't see anymore. But like, you know, 70s AM music, I always kind of feel like I'm in the back. How old are you? I'm 51. Okay, same age. I'm 52, but similar, similar, similar point of reference. Yeah. So yeah, that's 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 what I feel when I think Ambrosia, the Carpenters, all that. I feel like a station wagon, you know, going to with friends and um. Yeah. What about what about music that like the first music that was yours? Like like was it was it rock? Yeah, the first album I bought of my own was Back in Black. I was in Florida at the time, and I didn't wear shoes, and I didn't wear a shirt, and I dipped. Uh, Copenhagen. I was probably 11 or 12. <laughs> I was pretty red, Florida red. I lived in St. Petersburg, Florida with my mother at the time. Mm -hmm. We uh, rode our bikes everywhere. I rode my bikes four miles to school. I was probably nine or 10 years old. And my, I had a wealthy friend. We, we were quite not wealthy. And uh, living with my mom, she worked as a bank teller, I think at Nations Bank, making like six grand a year in 1979, whatever. Mm -hmm. And my dad lived in Chattanooga, Tennessee. My brother and I lived in Florida. And we would, uh, we had a friend named Michael who, whose father was a urologist and they lived on coffee pot Bayou. They had a dock and we would go over to his house and he had these wonderful swings and you would swing out into the water and do flips and stuff into the water. And we would, you know, drink and I didn't smoke cigarettes back then, but I, I did later, but uh, I dipped to tobacco. I, I, I chewed skull in Copenhagen <laughs> and uh, just for like little Tom Sawyer, just like little kids, you know, running around doing stuff. We It would rain and we'd go on, there was a golf course closer to his house that we would it would, it would rain, it would flood the golf course, we would get them pieces of wood. And so it was quite 
a bad time in one way, but it was quite, as you can hear, idyllic in, in another way. Um, but that music, Back in Black, The Rolling Stones, Aerosmith, classic rock. Uh, I was starting to get into The Clash at that time. I think my friend Brad had a record called, uh, I remember in the first Clash record. I think it was the first Clash record. And uh, so that was my intro to that kind of thing where the where the archers kind of, that's, that influence started coming in. So, uh, but Back in Black was it, man. That was the one, that first one I bought. I remember it very well. And I listened to it to this day. I don't have, the, I don't have it on the, on the record anymore. It was a piece of vinyl. I don't, I don't have it anymore. But That's a pretty damn good one. Um, yeah. Is there is there music to that sounds like uh, like in certain seasons? Like like can you not can you only listen to certain music at certain seasons? Is there is there things that affect what you want to hear? Yeah, I do think that. I think wintertime is a good time for ambient things, you know. And uh, Brian, you know, you know, discreet music or whatever. I like to listen to that in the winter and the fall. I like uh, I like. Uh, I mean, I would not necessarily listen to Van Halen anywhere except for in the summertime. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Reminds me of being in high school. Yeah. Uh, that's definitely a summary. Metal is kind of a summary thing for me. Yeah. And uh, and I would argue that, uh, I mean, there's certain things I listen to all year round, but they, like I, I would say somebody like Towns Band, Zan is more autumnal, but I listen to him all the time. So mm-hmm. I don't know, bands from like that always band, that's a that's a wintertime band for me. Oh, cool, you know, yeah. I think of newer bands that, that are really wonderfully melodic and, and uh, have a heightened sense of melody and do it, you know, that I like a lot. I remember being a kid, when Unforgettable Fire came out in high school, that was all, oh, yes, it's because they were in the snow all the time, you know. Um, that was always winter, but that was just more the, the marketing, I think, of that stuff. I, I always thought of that um, record as a fall record, but I think that's because, and and also Joshua Tree, but also I think I saw the Joshua Tree in the fall. So these things kind of stamp you on it, you know. And we have these conversations, as I have these conversations, I keep saying, like, at a certain point, it became when the record came out, if I really liked it, because I got it when it came out, and it's like, oh, that's a fall record, that's a winter record, that's a spring record. But anything before I was buying music on street date is when I heard it, usually, you know? And I was talking to Patterson Hood from Tribe at Truckers, and we had a thing where he thought Reckoning by R.E.M. was a spring record. It came out in spring, yeah. But I heard it on a cassette in fall a few years later. So for me, and so there, there's a the fascinating thing here. Also, uh, where are you right now? Are you in Athens? I am. Yeah, I'm okay. Athens, so yeah. winter is, is winter, it, it's it's not, it's not cold, cold, but... No. Um, but but still winter, yeah. Yeah, it can it. snow, but it's it's definitely mild. I mean, you're where are you from? Minneapolis. I'm from Minneapolis, but I'm in Brooklyn. But e- but still cold. E- either way, you guys have winter. We don't have. You, you would laugh at our winters, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, I think about like Husker Du is is to me a winter band because they have those kind of icy shards of guitar. Yes, I and, think so. Yeah. Uh, you know, um, but but a lot of other but uh, of my favorite bands, that's maybe the one that I most associate with a, with a season. The new record, uh, Reason and Decline, uh, first Archer's album in almost 25 years, which is a pretty significant gap even when we consider rock and roll history, right? I mean, bands with records 25 years apart, uh, consecutive records 25 years apart, big deal. Um, I know you played shows. Uh, I think 2012 was kind of the big the big tour. Is that right? That's yep. uh, We ran into each other then uh-huh. a couple of places. Um, but writing and recording is another step. And I'm, I'm wondering how... How did it all come about? And I guess, yeah, that, how did you decide to make this record? So I think the reunion that happened in 2011 and 12, when it was, for, from my perspective, and I think everybody in the band is different, it was Sean, who manages the Archers, called me 
and said, would you be up for doing shows if I could convince Alias to license the records out to merge, to promote it? Would you do that? I was like, I consider it, you know. And so the, the wheels got rolling and it was worked out. And uh, for me, when it was going to happen, I was like, yeah, that's a good reason to do it. That's fine. There was no discussion or idea in my head of doing more music. And I just knew that uh, the person that I was, and, and still am to some degree, but the person that I was then and the way, the sort of the position I took to write, you know, if, if you, we hyperbolize parts of our personality to get to a character that we can sing from, uh, that guy, for me, is, is not something I can go back to. And so the Archer's thing was just off the table in terms of writing the music. I just, that's not going to happen. I just can't do that. But uh, what the problem is, is that when you start playing with people that you have chemistry with you re and you really care, care you like, you enjoy it, you know, then there's this idea, well, maybe you don't have to do that. Maybe you don't have to, maybe you can position yourself over here where there's a shared set of this, this, what you did in the past. And, and I, it was just, it took so long after 2012, after we had done that, the idea of making a record was like, ah, we'll try, but it couldn't happen because I couldn't get there. And over that decade, uh, I tried and just couldn't figure it out. I couldn't find that position. I couldn't do it, you know. And then uh, the pandemic. Yeah. And then uh, the Trump administration. <laughs> and I had a severe, uh, I've said all this before, so I don't want to sound boring, but uh, I had a severe uh, mental problem mm -hmm. that I had to go get help for. And that was cathartic. Uh, it ended up being a positive thing. Got through it. And then uh, when I came out of that, it, it was there. I was like, oh, I found it. And I could start, and I started writing. I wrote Screaming Undercover, the third song. And it was uh, really up-tempo. I just th I think I had a drum machine. And I put it on the motoric beat. And I just let that play for a while. And I just it just came out within 20 minutes. It was done, you know. And that was it. Okay, that's what. That's my guy. That's who. Like, that's me. It's authentic. It's sincere. I can do that. It works with the band. It's the thing. So, and then I could even do mellow songs. I could do. I could do whatever. You know. It's just I had the guy. So when that happened, uh, it was quite quick. And I started sending demos to EJ, and our old process started kicking in because those guys are just easy to. They're smart and engaged and capable. So if you start, if you just go like this, EJ's like okay, and he just comes back with his thing and. Sends it back to me, and I change my guitar part, and he changes his, and I change mine, and I shift the lyrics over here, and then we give it to Mark and Matt, and Mark's an incredibly good structural guy, and Matt's an incredibly good harmonizer. He'll play things on his bass. I was, I've been saying this in other things. It's so true. The Archer's guitars are what we're known for, but the truth is if Matt just played the roots of what the chord was, it wouldn't sound as innovative, you know, but uh, because he'll play a second inversion, or a first, he'll put a, a B or a D in a G chord, you know, instead of the bass, it changes things, or he'll even do a different note altogether. But we keep doing it. It just changes the whole thing. So it's a very, uh, although I do write the skeletons of the songs, uh, you know, it's a very collaborative process. And uh, I wanted to do it again with those guys. And so that was really why I tried for 10 years. When, when, was, it, when was it actually recorded in the studio? We went into Drop of Sun in Asheville in October of last year. Okay, so about a year ago. About a year ago, exactly. And then I guess it was finished mixing in January, and then it finally came out just last week. So, was it was it easy when you got in the studio? Yeah, we had a different process because Matt's in band of horses and he's so busy, and I'm so busy with my kid and my own rock and roll dream that I do. And then, or fuck, it's not really rock and roll, but uh, and then Mark's working and EJ's a lawyer and everybody's got their lives. And we don't live in the same town, so we we're like herding cats. I feel bad for the people that have to organize us. 
I went in, we did it differently. Mark was having a hard time. We had probably 12 songs we went in with and Mark had like three of them. He's like, I'm not sure what I'm doing on these. We, we played to a click for the first time and Mark loved it. Like Mark was the one we were working. Mark's never, he hasn't done that, but he's such a capable dude that, you know, it was just, he loved it because he could just like, wait, let's just not do anything here. We leave the drum set up, they're all mic'd up. And so I do all my parts. So I did everything of mine. I did my guitars, all my guitars, any other kind of piano, uh, any kind of weird things I did. I sang everything, did all the backup vocals, did everything. And then Mark did the drums, EJ did the guitars, and Matt came in last and did the bass, which is not how we normally work. I made a record that way. Uh, Teeth Dreams by The Hold Steady with a producer named Nick Raskalenitz, and he records a lot of stuff um, that way, and he records a lot of hard rock uh, records and he said, and I hope I'm not blowing any of his secrets, but he said the Rush records he recorded, he recorded that way, and they actually overdubbed Neil Peart's parts, um, and a lot of hard rock stuff because it he in his mind it allowed the drummer to go for it without worrying about blowing a take. Right, it's liberating. I, I think that's a very accurate assessment. Um, I also think it's important to say here though we we came into the whole thing, and this is my old school way of thinking, we, we had, we could have played them all live. We had them rehearsed. We had practiced and practiced and practiced. You know, we had them ready. Uh, just those three that Mark wasn't that sure about. But the rest of them, we, we could have done it. But we just thought, well, let's try this different approach because we haven't done it this way before, you know. Yeah, and it, and it gets you somewhere new. And yep. uh, and also, I think it allows the drummer to have, yeah, for once, not be the guy who everyone's looking to. Was that a good take, you know? Totally. I, I'm, I'm not blowing smoke. I think the record's a triumph. I'm a huge fan, and, like, and like it's, it's I mean, it slots in with all the others 24 years later, which is amazing. Were you surprised along the way, or were you confident that you, were you just confident in the guy <laughs> said it was going to be what you wanted? <laughs> Oh, Craig, I'm never confident. <laughs> just, to, just to let you in. I'm one of the most self-loathing, unconfident people you'll ever meet. And yeah. uh, and uh, so, no, I, I don't. If anything is liked, I'm just so, I weep when I'm by myself because I'm so shocked and enamored that anybody likes it. You know, because I just assume, my default is everybody fucking hates me, you know. So, not that it's a psychological, I just talk about musically and decisions I make musically. And, and it's been devastating in some ways, you know, but it's also just the default. So anytime somebody says what you just said, or I, I feel love coming back for something that we made, I'm just so grateful and so happy about it, you know. But to say that I'm confident in the process, I can fake it. I can, I can, everybody in the room might think I'm confident, but that's just not. But you can hear it, man. You can hear it in the, in the, in the words, you know. Sure, sure. Well, when the band comes back together, does it feel like everyone settles into their familiar roles and the sort of family dynamic? And No doubt about it. No doubt about it. But that's, the, that's an important thing I want to bring up, too, is that, uh, you know, this group of people, we're an anomaly. We were recording with John Plymo on the first batch of singles we did with Raleigh Days and all those songs. And none of those were going to be an album because it just didn't fit together as an album. I mean, it's like at that point, I still hadn't really found... I had come up with these things that were kind of more lighthearted and sort of, they didn't really have a focus. They were just, I was just being nostalgic about Raleigh, you know, about the fallout shelter. It's, it's kind of easy to write like that. You're not really putting yourself on the line, you know? And it's fine. It's But that's uh, John Plymouth, who's just a sweetheart of, an, of, a, of a producer engineer. He At the end of the whole thing, I'm not even sure he's a fan of the band. Uh, you know, I just assume, like I said, I just assume everybody's like, yeah, whatever. Yeah, I'll do it. It's, it's going to be a thousand dollars a day or whatever, you know? He was, at the end of the whole thing, he was just like, man, you guys are special, special chemistry, special group of guys, you know. It was great to work with you, you know. He was really friendly, and I realized, because I hadn't worked with him in, in a decade or so in a studio context, we didn't really have a big breakup, like a big ang angry argument. We didn't have that. And we never, if you look back on it, that just wasn't going to be something that the band would ever do. 
because we're just there's not there's no real raging asshole. There's nobody that I mean me if anybody <laughs> can be that way. But Matt Gitlang, like you know that guy at all, man. That guy's just not an asshole. He just oh, yeah, can't I'm, do it. There's I'm, nothing about him. You, you know what I'm saying? And EJ yeah. and Mark are the same. These guys are so kind, you know. And he's gonna get along with it. And I think I think that when you end without any kind of drama like that, it's quite easy to fall back in. You know. Hey, I'm Craig Finn. Here on That's How I Remember It, we often talk about music. So I wanted to mention DistroKid and their new app for iPhone and Android. DistroKid makes music distribution fun and easy with unlimited uploads and artists keeping 100% of their royalties and earnings. Over a million artists rely on DistroKid to get their music into Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, TikTok, Tidal, Instagram, and all the major streaming services. With this app, you can sign up and pay for a new DistroKid account, or sign into an existing one. You can upload new releases. You can get notified when you've earned royalties, edit your account details, check your streaming stats, add lyrics and song credits, edit release metadata, and so much more. The DistroKid app is now available on iOS and Android. Go to the app or Play Store to download it. Oh, yeah. I mean, bands don't really break up anymore, period, unless they're, you know, I don't know, the Smiths. Um, but, 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 you know, if you like each other and I had the same experience when, when the hold steady, we took a little break and then we got back together and then we played some shows and then we decided to make some new music. And when we went in with Josh Kaufman, who was, uh, produced some of my solo records after the first day, he said, you guys are a band. Like, this is like, you know, like, like you, the way you interact, it's, he said, it's, it's mildly intimidating because you take over the room, you know, it's like, and now there's six of us. So it's like, you know, it's like the culture is dominated by whatever we're doing. It's a gang. Yeah. It's a yeah. Gang. Yeah. But it's, it's really, it's really, it feels great to be a part of. Um, how about, you know, to, to this, I'm thinking about with you guys living in different places versus when you started Do the, do the songs start the same or do you, are you developing the songs more on your own before you bring them in? Well, there's definitely a direction um, and there's a tempo, like I write down the beats per minute, and there's the chords of the chords and the words of the words, the melodies there. But I'm open, man. I'll change all of it. I'll change. Let's try this one slower. Let's, I'll just. How about I just leave that whole verse out? How about I just come up with new words, whatever you know? So I'm pretty open. But to be candid, this process of getting us all together because we all live in different towns, we really just kind of didn't think too much about. Do we like it? Yes. Okay, let's do it. Do we not do we because in the past if we didn't like something if I brought something and people weren't went into it We would just rip it to shreds and do something else and I might pull one lyric from it and it'd be a totally different thing But with this one it was kind of but I also think the songs were strong enough what I presented was You know, I had time to bake it thoroughly before I presented it to him Previous to this record were you guys like using technology as far as trading files that kind of thing? Or was it was it pretty much in the room up to this record always? With the Archer stuff, I mean, the last record was 97 when we were at six or something when we right. recorded it. So there was, we were, digital was just coming into into form there. So at least in our world, this for us, I mean, obviously Matt had made records and I had made records and, and Mark had played with Hotel Lights and EJ had made his own records. So everybody was, was in familiar with the digital realm or whatever. Easy. But uh, as a band, we hadn't worked like that. No. Did you used to four track at all? Oh God. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, everything after Ricky Metal, I, I did demos for on a four track. And I, I used to, and I, on a VV, I didn't necessarily give them to them, but once we did airports, I mean, I have uh, demos, four track demos of the EP, at least the audio horror and a couple, maybe one of the song and, and most of VV and then all of airports and Watch Trash Heroes. But I only gave the guys airports and Watch Trash Heroes because uh, 
we were so busy and we just, you know, it was just the way the band was changing, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Do you, so how about like what you're writing about? I'm thinking about this, the first song human, which is so beautiful. And I, I, not sure if I knew you had a, a five-year-old son. I was thinking, of, um, but also we are all getting older and, uh, you know, thinking about our own mortality. I feel like after 50, that really kicked in. At 50, that kicked in hard for me. Yeah. And I'm wondering if you think that those, those are part of, of that song? I mean, both? Is that cycle kind of part of that song? Uh, in terms of being older? No, I mean, just like the, the, the content, the lyrics, you know, the, the uh, human, the first song, yeah. I mean, yeah. Death, death will set you free. Um, it's pretty heavy. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely. Uh, it's hard to talk about this stuff because you don't want to. Uh, it's very sort of dipped in suicide ideation, and and, uh, and it's it's not about me, although I, I deal with that all the time, and I'm, I think everybody does, you know. Um, and nobody wants to really admit it or whatever. But I think uh, I think that song is uh, was cathartic. I think that came pretty quickly too. Um, and it, the actual version of it that I wrote first is, is more mellow. It's just like me on a piano doing arpeggios and I envisioned strings in it, you know? And, uh, and then as I was listening to the lyric and it was just kind of coming out, uh, uh, I wasn't really writing from the archer's guy that I had sort of come up with. It sort of came out during, it was a longer, a longer write, you know, it, I had to bake it longer, you know? So I guess finding that position to write from, let me finish it. But the initial, it's so hard to be human, only death can set you free. That that whole sort of hook of it is was written before I had discovered that guy. So it could have very well been a solo song or something else. But when I when I started writing the Archer's record and I started thumping the chords, you know, I was like, yeah, this would be this would be good. This can be Archer's for sure. But the lyric, I mean, I'm obviously not talking about it because I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> you know, you know what I mean. But yeah, it's got to be. It's got to be being in tune with that. But I think it's darker than just like, oh, I might die one day. It's darker than that. You know, it's it's. Let's do it. Let's do it tomorrow. You know, it's, it's that. You know. Okay. Well, I found a beauty in it. I mean, I think that you know, death is part of our uh, of our experience. Our human experience is sort of how I read it. So uh, you know, I think there is a light in there too. You talked about Trump, uh, the the Trump administration mm, leading to anger, I guess, and, and, and <laughs> yeah. disillusionment, yeah. et cetera. And I think it, it has uh, misinformation age obviously speaks to that, and you know, cable TV is it? Uh, is that uh, is that one of the more topical songs you think you've written? Sure, it definitely is. But I should say this, you know, I'm actually, and I haven't said this in an interview yet. I'm reading all these things coming back. I don't really read all the stuff that comes out because it would. Uh, frustrate me to read it or sad me to read it. Uh, but the one thing I'm noticing is I keep saying the Trump administration as if he's really the problem. To me, the bigger problem and more the theme on the record, and certainly in Misinformation Age and other songs, you know, uh, isn't him. He's a symptom of a greater, I mean, this is not new news or anything, but he's a symptom of a greater problem. How the hell did he, how did he win? You know, how did that even happen? You know, that's more what I'm singing about. Uh, that kind of crazy, irresponsible, you know, and it's simple. This is so funny. I've got to say this. Like when the album first came out a couple of days ago, Rolling Stone, who they're certainly not who they were back in the day, of course, and nobody really takes them seriously. But the first couple of days, they fixed it since then. The first time that they reviewed the record, they gave it a positive review. Thank you very much. Archer's come out with a new record, Reasons to Decline. They, they got the album <laughs> wrong. Right? This is Rolling Stone. Yeah, this, is a, yeah. this, is a, this is my example. The, the, the journalism is so bad at this point, even at that level. There's so much poor writing. 
I, my, my take on it, I've been thinking about a lot and, and I don't, you know, this is not a new take, but I feel like what we're dealing with always recently, especially is, is this idea of like reacting, reeling from technology and what, and how it's affected our world. And, you know, people said that in 1900 too, but I really think we are moving technologically at a pace where we we're, we're just sort of always adjusting to how it's affecting our real world and you know whether it's and and you know the death of magazines right like that's a part of it that's death of journalism death of local journalism um all this stuff you know things for uh hedge funds buying media things and shutting them down and gutting them for profit uh that this is all affecting this is why you're this is one reason why your album uh is named wrong on you know yeah. what used to be the beacon of our our like the what we'd, we'd be so psyched to get a great review in Rolling Stone. Yeah, and I, they fixed it. It's fine. They fixed it, but it's just so that it comes out at all like that. It's 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 telling, you know. And a lot of reviews, people review things and they're being kind or they're not being kind, whatever. But they they'll just get lyrics wrong. There's one there's one review I read that talked about uh, it was criticizing the lyrics for being too simple, and then it was like something something the dream is alive. The dream is alive. I never said the dream is alive. The dream is a lie, is what I said. But the review has it quoted wrong. Because I don't, you know, you can get the lyrics from the label if you want to write an article about it, but you're not doing your due diligence as a writer. So that guy's just, his credibility, like I feel bad for him because, and you'll know this because you've done this your whole life. All these writers go away and they sell insurance or they do software programming. They they leave this industry. Like this kid's going to, once he realizes, shit, I need money. He's going to leave the industry unless he started something like Pitchfork or something that worked really well, you know. Uh, and then, and we're going to keep doing it. And so it doesn't matter to me, you know, it's not like your, your review of me is going to ruin or make my career. It doesn't matter to me, but it makes, I feel bad for him because he just, for eternity, unless you go in there and lie and cheat and <laughs> change it, you know, like Rolling Stone did. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's, 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 it's a weird, it's a weird, I always think like, wow, I wouldn't have the confidence to write that unless I checked it. Oh my gosh. Exactly. But that's why you're that's why you're good though. See, that's the difference, dude. That's the thing, man. That's what I'm saying. I I, I it's that's why also you're your career. That's why it's a lack of confidence in one on one hand. But that makes you good. That 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 self-criticism is what is the thing, man. That's that that's a, that's what I'm talking about. My partner and I are both like really prompt. Like we, we, we show up on time to things and she and Angie said yeah, I just don't think I'm confident enough to be let to late to things. Good God, and, I, I love her already, man. I love that. <laughs> yeah, and I and I, I I got it. I was like, yeah, I don't want to be the guy walking in late. I want to be the guy who's on time. You know, people. Do, yeah, it's it's disrespectful. Absolutely, absolutely. So, so I, I want speaking of memory. I want to go back to something because I have a very vivid memory. 1993. I'm driving to break, pick up a friend at the airport in Boston. I was listening to, I believe it was WZBC, some college station in Boston. Web and Front comes on. It's spring '93. Ticked all my boxes. I think I got the seven inch, but I also somehow got a hold of the advance of Vicky Metal, and I listened to it a million times. Later that year, I moved back to Minneapolis, started a band called Lifter Puller, where we at least initially attempted to borrow greatly from the Archer sound. We found more of our own thing eventually, but that's part of the fabric of where I come from, how I got here, sitting in this chair right now. That song is an undeniable indie hit. You know, I don't know if you if it classifies as a commercial hit. I'm not sure what the numbers, you know, line up. But it, indie hit, I can get a room of, of you know, 500 to 1,000 people in every major city that could sing every word. Did you know when you recorded that song that, that it was like, that it was magic? Or was it just like, hey, we've got a song? I didn't know that it was magic, and and I would even argue that it's so awesome to hear you say that. So I don't, I don't want to disagree with it because it's 
an honor that anybody responds to it at all, like I said before. But no, I didn't have the confidence to think that it was a zeitgeist or on time or, you know, that so many people would have the positive reaction to it. I can, I can listen. I play it now when I do living room shows or solo shows. I play it and it works. I always, and I do think that was around the time when I started this idea that, well, if you can play it on a guitar and sing it and nothing else is around you, just that simple presentation and it kind of works or it definitely works, then you have a decent song. So that was the beginning of that. And so maybe because I was so young and I mean, to me, that song was at the time, I felt weird because I was really into like Glenn Bronca and no wave stuff, and like theoretical girl, all this stuff. And I had written a song where I thought I was just aping Bob Dylan. I just thought it was so, especially the line, like, you're not the one who let me down. That was such a, to me, that was such a, a Dylan ripoff. The good thing about that is that's a, that's just a conversation because Dylan was ripping off Arlo Guthrie and Ramon Jack Elliott and they were ripping off. So, and it goes on, you know, so that's okay. You know, but, uh, at the time I thought, Oh, it's cool. We got we got another song. Okay, we, we got we got eight now. We got to get four more. We can make a record. <laughs> it was more like that, you know. But I I can I can hear it now. When I play it now, I can hear why. And it worked. and when you play it, people, you know, there there. I mean, it's a it's a song. Like the the audience, they respond. Yeah, it's it's an incredible feeling. I, I know you know the feeling because it happens to you too with some of your songs. So yeah. But it's a first song, first song on first album. I mean, I think that's like like you know, it's a rock like you know, guys sitting around indie rockers sitting around at midnight arguing about something i think like it's the first song it's a it's a it's a rallying cry or it's a it's a mission statement or something it comes yeah, off that way it sets you up for people being like well, they never never did anything that good again <laughs> sets you up for that too but but i don't again i don't it, writing is this lifestyle and this thing that we're cho- we've chosen to do is <laughs> this is the life we chose it's like hyman roth from the godfather it's a process it's all fluxes it's all this the process like i don't I mean, I make stuff and I just assume, like, it's very liberating to assume the, the, the silver lining of this attitude I have that's default mode. If you already assume that people don't like it, then you're free <laughs> as a bird, man. I don't care. What are you going to do? Ruin my career? You're not going to like this next thing I do? Well, doesn't matter to me. Even when we started the Hold Steady, I was like, we're going to get 10 songs and put out a record, and then we're going to get 10 songs and put out another record because then you just say, hey, we got 10 songs. Want to hear them? Yeah. And then and it's not like we have. 18 songs and we're trying to sequence them perfectly yeah. you know it's just like hey we got 10 here's yeah. 10 you yeah. know here's another 10 here's another 10 you know just like just choosing a number almost when you started listening uh started archers you, you said you were listening to like brogna sing, things like that bronca what were you listening to like was there a, was there any idea of what you were trying to be or was it just like the four of you guys playing what came out well i do remember no i remember uh having a, a vision of sorts i knew i wanted to take that uh, sort of guitar, the, the the first symphony, Glenn Bronco's first symphony was the one I was really, really floored by. And if you listen to Toast, the beginning of Toast on Nicky Metal, that's, you can hear it. You can hear what I'm... But I was really trying to do that. And then I also just loved traditional songwriting. And I, when I say traditional, I mean like Tin Pan Alley, Cole Porter. I mean, old school songwriting, you know, Johnny Mercer, all, you know, even the corny jazz stuff, all the way to like, you know, the Bob Dylan and the Leonard Cohen and the people that have a real master over the, mastery over the language, over English language, you know. I always wanted to blend that. The Archers was almost a conflict of that desire to blend it because you don't want Towns Van Zant singing lyrics over the Rolling Stones. You know, you really want it to be about sex and drugs. and You don't want it to be about, I mean, it's, his music is about that too, but you don't want it to be too heavy, you know. Sure, sure. And so you want it to be, you know, you know, writing shouldn't be too heavy. Writing should be real. It's like I think people have a hard time with writing because it's just too 
they take it too seriously. Yeah. It's too it's too heavy. Like just relax, dude. Just yeah. if you can get to that point, and then you you have something to say, it generally comes out pretty well. You know, if you have any kind of talent or whatever. But uh, I knew I wanted to to blend them, and I think just looking back on it. <laughs> To some degree, it was a massive failure. <laughs> but to another degree, it became something else, you know, and it became... By the time Airports was recorded, it was there... That, that, that experimental sonic stuff was sort of drifting, and it was more just songs that we were kind of a, rock, a bar rock band, you know, which is fine, but that initial vision of blending was really on Vivi and, and, and the EP, versus the greatest of all time, and, and Nicky Metal. I have, a, I have a theory, like one of my rock and roll theories is that... Uh, is that you know every every band I like I think is funny in some way or every you know and and I think that's what you're saying is like when you lose the humor or if you're not sort of amusing yourself in some way yeah. you know Mick Jagger Nick Cave um, Chuck Berry all all funny you know yeah. and yeah. and I, the only you know there, there's very few bands I can think of that I like I mean Fugazi's never really funny um, but. I can't. I can't think of many other that that don't make me at least smile. Uh. Yeah, levity is so important. Uh, it's really, it's really your only way out of anything, <laughs> of anything, <laughs> any kind of mental trauma you're having. You have to find the levity, and I think that's why so, that, that works. If you can inject it tastefully into songwriting, that's yeah. what you're saying. It's, it's yeah. it really, it really helps. Yeah. Kind of getting towards the end here, but we're wrapping up. Uh, this era, the era of like, and you know, I, I, we're the same age roughly, and we are the same age. And I, I graduated in '93, so I have this kind of idea. Graduate college in '93, so I have this sort of idea of what things, uh, idyllic idea of that era. But like the early '90s is now sort of explained from a distance as sort of this post Kurt Cobain, alt rock, major label feeding frenzy. I, 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 you guys did end up on a major label, I believe, but. To me at the time, there also was like a new sort of indie thing emerging. I, I post hardcore, post SST, post Homestead Records. And I even first started hearing the term indie rock around then myself. Mm -hmm. British people spoke of indie, but I, I thought of indie rock as an aesthetic. And the parents of that scene, I guess, are Sonic Youth, Dinosaur Jr., etc. But it was almost being verified on Sabato's single, Gimme Indie Rock, as well, and, and the first Archer's record, he's saying she's an indie rocker, nothing's mm -hmm. going to stop her. Um, one of the things that seemed part of that was the 7-inch single. And there was these great singles coming out, Pavement, Rocker from the Crypt, Grifter, Super Junk. I'd go to the record store and get Web in Front or Slack Motherfucker, Summer Babe, whatever else. And it feels very quaint now, like this kind of post-war generation heading down to Woolworths to get a 45 jailhouse rock, you know? Yeah. I was absolutely a fan and not yet a participant. But do you, do you feel me at all? Is, is this imagined, or do, you, or do you feel that some of that is lost to history? Some of it, all of it, <laughs> all of it, all of it, brother. Yeah, I mean, it was a, it was a. I, I, I'm not a luddite. Like I like technology, man. I, I'm I'm fine with it. I, I couldn't be be doing what I do in terms of making a living playing music if it weren't for the internet. So I, I'm not somebody that doesn't like the internet. But at the same time, that's sort of. Mystery. The big, the, the main things that are lacking now are mystery. I remember when you would see something late at night on TV or on the midnight special, you'd see it, or and you'd be like, "Man, those guys are weird." <laughs> I love that. And you, and then that was it. You couldn't. You'd have to go to the record store. You'd have to look at a magazine. You could now. You just Google the fucking thing, you know. Yeah. And the mystery is gone. And that mystery is an art form. You know, the Cure and and bands that are massive. I'm using bands that are massive mm -hmm. now, yeah. like REM. They were so weird. In 1979 and 80, you know they were so what you know. Uh, Chronic Town, that EP, they can't. It's like, well, 
what what are they what is that? I can't understand a word he's saying and he's out of tune, but it's incredible, you know. So so that's gone. And then of course the lack of ability to uh to uh uh grow, uh, sort of develop what your band is privately before introducing it to the world. Cause now you you know bands are excited, they come out, they put their thing on YouTube and it's like there's no real development. Uh, there's no and of course, what you're talking about is the third thing, actually, where it's just this pace of, of like, I'm going to go to the record store, I'm going to talk to some people, be a grumpy little hipster, I'm going to grab my little seven inch and go home and listen to them while I drink a case of a six pack of beer, and then I'm going to go out and see a band, and I'm going to go to work, I'm going to go do dishes tomorrow at 7 a.m. for brunch, and I'm going to go back to the record store. You know, that whole thing. It, it was nice to you. I mean, I'm not sure if kids today want to do that, but I do. I did. That's what I did. So. Yeah, I mean, I think think you know you you go you put your you go get the seven inch. I think remember getting a seven inch. I'm pretty sure of harness and slums and putting it on, and then you know, and then it comes to the end of the song, and it's like, well, it's kind. I like that. I'm gonna play it again, and you end up it sits on your turntable, and you play it a few times, right? It's not like click, and you move on, and you're like that. I I heard that new song. Yeah, I don't remember. You know, it's like I I might have played everything ten times before I put it back in the sleeve. And there's there's a there's a pace to that that's nice. I have one more question. This is like the second season of this podcast, and I kind of have this idea of when possible I want to ask people about this because about about memory. And I looked up on the internet the first time I saw Archers, and I'm wondering if you there's you know these shows tend to run together for all of us. And I'm I'm gonna tell you this show and see if you have any memory of it. Um, July twenty seventh, nineteen ninety three, the Rat in Boston with Monsterland. Yeah. You know, it's funny, you're talking about memory now, it's starting to click with me. I remember people better, and you mentioned this at the very beginning of this conversation, where at the beginning of all this touring, my memory, I have, I can still remember these things. Like that show, I remember playing with Tom and Greg and all those guys in Monsterland. I remember their band name. I remember their names. I haven't seen them since that, that tour. I mean, I've seen Greg once on tour somewhere. Uh, but I remember him from that moment at the Rep, and there was like 26 people there. It wasn't that good of a crowd yet or whatever. And uh, I don't remember what we played. I don't remember the details, but I do have a black and white fuzzy memory of us doing that, like five or six strings of shows with him. And the one was at the Rat in Boston. And I remember thinking, didn't Aerosmith play here? You know, <laughs> all this stuff. You know, it. It. it I mean, it, it's funny because uh, I've run into Greg and Tom over the years as well. Mm-hmm. I when I looked up the show, I was surprised to learn they were on that bill. Yeah. Um. Uh. I don't remember that part of it. What I do remember is that I remember I had already had Icky Metal. I was very excited. I loved the show. I was blown. I thought your amps were really small versus the most fans of the era. Oh, right. did, was that was that the case? <laughs> well, yeah, but what, what was I playing? Do you remember? Because I usually always put a twin. And early, early on, I had, this is embarrassing, but I had a crate. Icky Metal was recorded with a crate amp. You were playing a crate amp. And it was a piece of shit, but I could just turn it all the way up. And I had a... I had something coming out of it to keep it from being so loud. Mm-hmm. Like I had a, a, a boost pedal that was lower, so it wouldn't be so loud. But I was just making sure the amp was just everything, just wide open. You know, it wasn't a tube amp probably, so it didn't matter that much if it was solid state. But but I just had it cranked, you know, and uh, and it was it's that's the the icky metal sound is that for my guitar is that. And EJ always had that boogie, which that boogie is small, but boy, it's like 110. It's heavy. It's so much stuff in the amp. 
I think it was probably the crate that, that was like, like it felt like, wow, man, I haven't seen a crate up on stage in a while. Oh, if you're, I have advice for a young band, don't use a crate. Don't use a crate. You can get a better sound. <laughs> Unless you're going to be just absurd and, and make it a thing, which is what I was doing. I was making it a thing, you know. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was because I was already heard the record. And I was like, how is he making that sound? And then I get there and it's like, is it a crate that's doing yeah, this? Through, but... a, through a, a boom, through a, a, a boost pedal that was lowered. Yeah. Well, uh, that's a great place to end it. Thank you so much oh my for God, taking the time. Thank you so and much. Uh, it's been so fun. And uh, I hope I, our paths will cross uh, before too long. I bet you they will. So there you have it. Huge thanks to Eric Bachman for coming on and sharing his thoughts. It's hugely enjoyable for me. And I hope you'll check out the new Archers record, which, as I said during the episode, I think it's a triumph. Archers of Loaf will also be on tour this winter. Check out archersofloaf.net for dates. And go check out a show. For more episodes of this podcast, please listen and subscribe and stay tuned for more great guests. And that's how I remember it.